And it is a great day for our congregation. We get to celebrate together the rite of baptism with a number of people this afternoon. I do hope you'll come. I do hope you'll come. And, uh, you know, I, I just can't resist this. I love it when the old squeeze box is used to declare the merits of something other than a beer barrel. It's just, it's just grand. And uh, great job, team. Thank you very much. Um, in like fashion, it's, it's uh, wonderful that, that we would declare the merits of something far greater than our paths, that we would serve our king and serve him well. Um, I have a need at 9 o'clock for two uh, three-year-old teachers and two second and third grade teachers. Um, we will be canceling classes uh, apart from you are the pool of people who need to step up and serve those children and we will have to start uh, canceling classes in the future if you're not willing to do that. And uh, You know, I hate to cancel children's classes for a variety of reasons but um, one of them is what Jesus himself says that unnerves me. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble... It would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Being the uh, careful Bible student that I am, I'm thinking that Jesus is interested in the way we treat our children. And uh, I am not interested in standing before him one day and trying to make up excuses why, why in a congregation this size I couldn't scrape together volunteers to serve our children for six months. So... Uh, for my sake, who will one day stand accountable before Jesus for this stuff that goes on, as well as if you don't like the idea of a large millstone hung around your neck and being tossed in the depths of the sea, please prayerfully consider today on your way out. You can't walk out the lobby without a chance to sign up to serve our kids, and I only need four more who would do that. So please uh, earnestly consider that while we worship and take care of that matter before you leave. Well, back in 2004, December of 2004, there was a tremendous shift, uh, kind of a tectonic shift, 50-foot vertical shift in the plates of our earth for nearly 1,000 miles in length located in the Indian Ocean. What amazes me most about this earthquake, the second largest recorded earthquake uh, since we started recording the measurements of it, is that no one died from this earthquake. The second largest earthquake in recorded history, the fourth largest in all of history, as best we can tell, no one died from the earthquake. However, that earthquake generated something called a tsunami wave out there in the Indian Ocean just off the province of Aceh, Indonesia. And the waves from that earthquake claimed likely in excess of 230,000 lives. It wasn't the earthquake directly. It was, it was the tsunami, in a sense, the shock waves that that earthquake sent out in all directions. Lives were lost in 14 nations on multiple continents from that tsunami. And as we look again in the life of King David, this morning as kind of a paradigm for what's going on in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, there is, with every sinful act, a kind of spiritual tsunami that follows. There is a path of destruction that is unpredictable and indiscriminate that has consequences far greater oftentimes than the original act of sin that transpired. 
This is exactly what happened in chapter 11 of David's life. He is up on the rooftop, and what, what he thought was merely a look, a lustful look at a woman bathing on a nearby rooftop, turned into adultery, which turned into murder of her husband. And not just that one man, but we know that it was other innocent men also gave their lives because of that look. I wonder, was it 10 men? Was it 50 men? Was it 100 men who gave their lives? Had their lives snatched from them? Because of that one act of sin that happened on that rooftop. You know, in that great Indian Ocean tsunami on December 26th of 04, it was the third wave that was most destructive. There were multiple waves that came out from that seismic event. And it was the third one that was most destructive. And in chapter 12, speaking through the prophet Nathan, God said there would be more waves. There would be huge waves that would come out as a result of David's sin. And they would sweep away his own family. Chapter 12 said this, Nathan says, Therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he'll lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And today in chapter 13, the chapter we want to explore together today, this prophetic judgment upon David's sin starts to unfold with great tragedy in his own family. Oftentimes when I'm watching TV, it seems like at the most inopportune times, um, this image will come up. You've seen these commercials, I'm sure. They are um, anti-smoking commercials. And the lady on the, whose picture is on the right, I believe, yeah, or on the, on the left for you, um, her name is Terry Hall. She started smoking casually at age 18. A two-pack-a-day addiction lasted 22 years, and then she had to receive a permanent tracheotomy as a result of her smoking. Fellow on the, on the right, his name is Grun von Behrens. He started using spit tobacco at age 13, was diagnosed with oral cancer at 17, and has been through 35 painful surgeries, removing parts of his neck and tongue. And like I said, these commercials come up at the most distracting, disruptive times. And when you watch them, you just think, who in their right mind, after hearing these warnings, would want to go out and chew or light up? I mean, who would want to do that? You know, it's just one of those strong, strong warnings that's sobering when you hear it. And today we have a text that serves that same function for us. It is one of these strong warnings that comes to us through somebody else's life not to go where they have gone, not to do what they have done. And in this case, it's the life of David. This text serves the function of a warning. It sounds a warning that there are unanticipated and indiscriminate consequences to our sins. The warning on the label reads this way. Warning. Your sin is far worse than you think. The repercussions are far greater Innocent bystanders you love and care about will suffer because of your sin. 
David never dreamed it would end up looking like this. In chapter 13, the shockwaves from David's sin on that rooftop hit his family in ways he never anticipated. In chapter 13, it all starts. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. So Amnon has fallen in love with his half-sister, both of them children of David through different mothers. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, a virgin princess no less, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shemiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man, and he asked Amnon, Why do you, the king's son, Look so haggard morning after morning. Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed. Pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. Number of things we learn about the players in this story. In, in this account, it's all family. It's all David's family. They're all related. And Jonadab, who is related to David, is an absolute weasel. He, uh, he comes to his friend, Amnon, and helps him scheme his own sin. And if you have friends like that who help you scheme how you can sin in more creative and greater ways, um, especially when you notice this doesn't touch him at all, he's going to walk away unscathed from this situation, Jonathan is. Then those are not friends. Those are relationships you need to walk away from and not look back. This friendship will cost Amnon his life. Now, Amnon in this account, proves himself to be an absolute fool. He is a man enslaved to his desires, and you can tell by the language that's used as he thinks about his sister that this is not really love. This is lust that's dressed up in his mind as love. He's a slave to his desires, and he takes Jonadab's evil advice. Verse 6, Amnon lay down, pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. So David, clueless throughout this entire passage, sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house, obediently, dutifully, trustingly goes to the house of her brother Amnon who was lying down. She took some dough kneaded it, made the bread in his sight, and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom, so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother, Amnon in his bedroom. And when when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. 
Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Now the consequences to David's sin are playing out, beginning to play out in his own family through his sons. David gives in to his lust. He sleeps with another man's wife, one of his own mighty men, one of his dearest warriors who've laid down their life for him. So now his firstborn, the heir to the throne, Amnon, yields to his lust and rapes his half-sister, Tamar. only David had known, if only he could have seen where it was all going to lead, I wonder if things would have been different on that rooftop. But he couldn't see, and he didn't know. And that's what's so great about this text for us. See, now you know. Now you know where your sin can lead. Now you know what it can do to innocent people you love and care about. See, the warning on the label reads, warning, your sin is far worse than you think. The repercussions are far greater. Innocent bystanders you love and care about will suffer because of your sin. In 1999, for the first time in 47 years, Marshall Shelley writes, local fishermen discovered that tuna were running only 30 miles off Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And they were biting. You didn't have to be a professional to catch them. All you needed was a sharp hook and some bait. The rewards for doing so were substantial. Rumor had it that Japanese buyers were willing to pay $50,000 for each large bluefin. So as a result, many ignored Coast Guard warnings, headed out to sea in small, unequipped boats. What these new fishermen didn't realize that the problem is not catching a tuna, it's getting it in your boat. So on September 23rd, the Christiana 19-foot boat capsized while doing battle with a tuna. That same day, the 27-foot boat, Basic Instinct, suffered the same fate while official business, a 28-footer, was swamped after it hooked onto a 600-pound tuna The tuna simply pulled it underwater. Marshall Shelley writes, These fishermen underestimated the power of the fish they were trying to catch. Temptation, he says, likewise, can blindside you. A small indiscretion appears to be worth the risk, but as with a hooked tuna, only after we hook into temptation do we discover its true strength. David is experiencing what he's really hooked into. And it is devastating. You know, you read this chapter, and there is no mention of God in the entire chapter. No crying out to God, no consulting God. God is simply absent. 
The only glimmer of righteousness in this entire passage is a beautiful and tragic one. That's David's daughter, Tamar. She graciously serves her allegedly ill half-brother, trusts him, and then appeals to Amnon from every angle not to commit this heinous crime, but he will not listen. And so he rapes his sister and then adds to his sin in the verses that follow. Amnon hated her then with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of here. And bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out, bolted the door after her. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. It was the the garment of a virgin princess. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. Now her full brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Moses' law, in many cases, would have a man marry the woman that he had non-consensual sex with. It's complicated here by their family ties, but there's no thought given to this. Amnon has no interest in righteousness, in doing what God would ask, in repenting well. Amnon's love has now turned to hate. You know, sin promises, but it cannot deliver past the moment. It promises love, but the disguise is stripped away and lust turns to hate. And looking at it objectively, when you can get free from your temptation and you just step back and you look at it, you're inclined to think, what was I thinking? Because sin is just plain stupid. John Bukema writes, when I heard about Alice Pike's arrest, two questions came to my mind. Alice is the woman who tried to pay for her Walmart purchases with a $1 million bill. Walmart, a $1 million bill. Two questions came to my mind. He said, there isn't really a $1 million bill, is there? And secondly, what was she thinking? He said, the answer to the first question is no, silly. The U.S. Treasury doesn't make a banknote with that many zeros. I don't know how high they go, but thanks to Alice, nobody's going to con me on the million-dollar one now. As far as what Alice was thinking, that second question, I don't believe she was. He says, Alice went to the register with $1,675 worth of stuff. What is amazing is she expected change. Math, he says, is not my strong suit, but by my calculation, that's a lot of change. 
was Alice really expecting that the cashier not only would, but actually could hand over $998,325 in change. Did she envision the cashier on the loudspeaker saying, we need 10s and 20s on aisle 5? Did she even bring a vehicle big enough to handle her purchases and the mountain of change? He wisely says, Alice reminds us of the irrationality of sin. Most sin doesn't make sense. We lie and expect good results. We overindulge in food or alcohol or entertainment and expect to feel better. We take what isn't ours and expect satisfaction. We refuse to resist temptation and expect peace. We act selfishly and expect stronger relationships. We ignore repentance and expect forgiveness. We hand over a fake and expect change. Sin does not make change. It only makes more sin. It only offers a deeper snare. And only the kindness of God that leads us to repentance can set us free once we have been ensnared. Now back in our story, Amnon cannot stand the sight of this visible reminder of his sin, Tamar. So he treats her and refers to her now not as my sister, but as this woman. Some scholars suggest we should render that this thing. So he banishes her, throws her out, and tells his servant to bolt the door after her. Tamar suffers deeply for the sin of her brother. She is called a desolate woman. One commentator says this was a living hell for a woman in her situation in this culture. You need to note that the good and the innocent do suffer for the sins of others. The shrapnel of our sin touches deeply our family. There are people in your family who are innocent bystanders to your sin who will suffer for it, whether inflicted intentionally or unintentionally. The waves from your sin are indiscriminate. This is why. The warning on the label of the temptation that's before you reads like this. Warning, your sin is far worse than you think. The repercussions are far greater. Innocent bystanders you love and care about will suffer because of your sin. Your sin is far worse than you think. It just seems like a little thing, just an innocent thing, and the consequences go on and on and on. Riccato tells the story of Matteo Boya. Boya was practicing his golf swing in a pasture adjacent to Africa's Benin Air Base. With one swing of the golf club, Boya set off an unbelievable series of events. The shot, which was described as a glorious slice, hit a bird which in turn dropped onto the windshield of a trainer jet whose pilot was taxiing into position for takeoff. The pilot lost control of his plane and plowed into four shiny Mirage jets, totally demolishing the entire Air Force of Benin. Boya was jailed immediately for hooliganism 
And his attorney said he had no chance of winning a trial. The country wanted Boya to pay $40 million to replace the Jets. But since he made only $275 per year, he figured it would take him 145,000 years to pay off his debt to society. Your sin is far worse than you think. The repercussions are far greater. They are unimaginable and indiscriminate. In verse 21, when King David heard all this, he was furious and did nothing. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shears were at Baal Hazor for the, on the, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. David is furious and does nothing. For two years, David does nothing. Matter of fact, David never does anything about this. There is no action taken on the part of the, of the father for the son who rapes his sister, David's daughter. And you wonder, how does a great leader, how does a man after God's own heart become so impotent in his own family? It has been suggested, and perhaps rightly so, that David's own sin is undercutting his leadership here. And it is hearing a voice that says, how can you discipline him when Bathsheba is living in your house? How can you, who do you think you are? Perhaps you have heard that voice. Who do you think you are to speak about their sin? Don't you remember X? Have you forgotten Y? And the tendency is to allow that voice to paralyze us. But it need not. This is Satan's ploy because your sins, once repented of and forgiven you by the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection on your behalf, it's past. It's as far, God says, as the east is from the west. All that is left of your sin now is the wisdom that God has entrusted to you to shepherd others from falling into the same sin. In an odd and beautifully redemptive twist, it may be that you are now more useful to God because of your sin to help those who are struggling with the same sin. Verse 24, Absalom went to the king and said, You know, your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his officials please join me? This is a time to celebrate. Big parties were had at sheep shearing time. No, my son, King David replied, All of us should not go. We'd only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. And Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. And the king asked him, Why should he go with you? David seems to be getting suspicious, but Absalom urged him, so he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. 
Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Have not I, the king's son, given you this order. Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered, and then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. Again, another wave of David's sin comes washing through his family in keeping with what the prophet Nathan had declared back in the previous chapter. Um, You, David, struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him before the sword with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. And now the sword has entered David's house. And son is killing son. God keeps his word, even if it's a word of judgment. So David murders Uriah, and now Absalom murders Amnon. You know, we have a saying, the apple doesn't fall from the tree. Like father, like son. And David's sin now is finding its way into his family and is destroying it. The tsunami of his sin has followed David once again right into his own, own house. It has taken the purity of his daughter and now it has taken the life of his son. And you have to hate the idea that your children might follow in your sin. You know, uh, researching this uh, Indian Ocean tsunami, there are certain warning signs that preceded it, one of which was a, uh, a rapid retraction of the tide that exposed um, the shoreline, and this was a, a sign that something was amiss in the ocean, and it precedes the tsunami. Um, but the great tragedy of it is that receding of the current also attracted the children from the shoreline, all the fishing villages, because it exposed all the fish there lying on the shore. And so the children ran right out to the edge of the surf as it retracted, and they perished there. The idea that our sin could somehow lead our children to follow our example is one of the soberest warnings that the scriptures can sound. And the warning signs are huge. They read this way. Your sin is far worse than you think. The repercussions are far greater than you can imagine. Innocent bystanders you love and care about will suffer because of your sin. Sometimes we, we think, my sins are small. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not murdering anybody. But even the smallest of sin can do incalculable damage. 
At Seattle's Boeing Field, brand new commercial jets leave the factory and enter service, and Boeing uses the airfield to do a final flight test and to provide customers with a first flight upon delivery. In 2004, engine problems developed in 10 brand new planes being tested. And while inspecting the engine intakes with a flashlight, mechanics found glass beads coating the inside of the engines, the tiny beads about the size of granulated sugar were identified as the reflective ingredient in the paint used on runway lines. Officials walked out to the tarmac and found one section where the beads, the reflective beads of glass, were separating from the runway paint. The reflective runway stripes had been recently repainted, and a defect in the paint allowed those tiny glass beads to be sucked into the jet engines as they powered up for their initial takeoffs. Ten planes had ingested the beads, which necessitated all ten of the engines be scrapped. That single paint job carried a $50 million price tag. See, the consequences of our sin are incalculable to us. And here, sin has donned yet another disguise. First, it dressed up as lust, or dressed up as love but in reality was lust. Now it is hate dressing up like justice in the life of Absalom. Other dark motives may well be lurking here for Absalom. Amnon was the firstborn and heir to the throne after David. Absalom was third. But the second son is nowhere mentioned. Nothing's recorded about him in Scripture. So he must have been out of the picture. And in only a couple pages of your Bible, Absalom will lead a mutiny against his father and attempt to seized the throne. So by removing Amnon in this way, not only was he exercising his hatred um, for what had gone, what had happened to his sister Tamar, but now the lust for power may also be creeping in and shaping his motivations as well. And it is a toxic mix, mix, hatred and a lust for power. In verse 30, while they were on their way, the sons, kings, back to David, The report came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his clothes, and lay down on the ground. And all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. But who should be there but Jonadab, son of Shimea, the weasel? David's brother said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes, only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's expressed intent ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord, the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. Now the man standing watch looked up and saw many people on the road west of him coming down the side of the hill. And the watchman went and told the king, I see men in the direction of Horonaim on the side of the hill. And Jonadab said to the king, See, the king's sons are here as it happened just as your servant said. And as he finished speaking, the king's sons came in, wailing loudly, and the king too and all his servants wept very bitterly. Jonadab continues to be the weasel here. He set up Amnon. He is now setting up Absalom so as to endear himself to David. And David's heart is broken. His family is being shredded. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of... Amahud and the king of Geshur. But King David mourned for his son every day. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years, and the spirit of the king longed to go and see his son Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. 
So David's sin that started out with one lustful look on a rooftop where his pride had so subtly placed him has now led to all of this. The shockwave of David's David's sin has destroyed his family and his heart is broken. If only David had known when he was on that rooftop where it all would have ended up. But he didn't know and he couldn't see. And that's the beauty of this passage for us. Now we know We know where our sin could lead. We know that the warning is true, that our sin is far worse than we think, that the repercussions are far greater than we can imagine, and that innocent bystanders we love and care about will suffer because of our sin. Now let me underscore the several important lessons that we've been talking about that just tumble out at us from this account. I'm going to make sure we don't miss them. First, the consequences, the tsunami from your sin cannot be fully anticipated. The waves are bigger and faster than you can imagine. They came in on Aceh province and Indonesia from that tsunami at 80 to 100 feet high double the height of this room. Who would have thought? And they came so fast, they outstripped the warning system. That wave traveled in the depths of the ocean before it got to shore at an excess of 500 miles an hour. Sin is like that. The consequences, they can't be anticipated. And once they've been released, they can't be controlled. Second thing, sin destroys families. Every one of us that struggles with our families has a busted up family. You know what's at the heart of it? Sin is at the heart of it. Sin destroys families. And the innocent will be hurt by the sins of their family members. Some of you have experienced that. Thirdly, sin can undermine your leadership so that you are impotent to rescue the ones that you love. That's what happened to David. But it need not. The grace and mercy from God can restore you to an even greater usefulness. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that's true for us. Through the cross, that's true for us. Lastly, sin always has consequences. It's just the nature of sin. Sin is evil. It dresses up like love, but it's lust and hatred. It dresses up like justice, but it's, it's hatred. It's also because of the nature of God that sin always has consequences. God is extraordinarily just. And as odd as it may seem, He's extraordinarily good, and that's why sin has consequences. It's his way of redeeming our sin for good to safeguard us from the same heinous sins in the future. 
it's tragically that's how we learn is through suffering and pain Ashlyn Blocker's parents and kindergarten teachers all describe her exactly the same way one word fearless she is fearless because Ashlyn can feel no pain in the school cafeteria, teachers put ice in five-year-old Ashlyn's chili because even though her lunch is scalding hot, she'll gulp it down anyway. She's chewed through her tongue while eating. She's torn flesh off her finger after putting the finger into her mouth. Ashlyn is among a tiny number of people in the world known to have a congenital insensitivity to pain called CIPA, a rare genetic disorder that makes her totally unable to feel. Family photos reveal a series of these self-inflicted injuries. One picture shows Ashlyn in her Christmas dress, hair neatly brushed, with a swollen lip, missing teeth, puffy eye, and athletic tape wrapped around her hands to protect them. She smiles in a picture like a little boxer who just won a prize bout. But Tara, Ashlyn's mother, wisely says this. She says, pain is there for a reason. It lets your body know something's wrong and it needs to be fixed. And then she says, I'd give anything for her to feel pain. And God in his mercy has sent consequences for our sin into our lives. It's part of his warning. And warnings save lives. One of those Thailand beaches, as that tsunami was approaching, began to exhibit the signs of a tsunami coming in. The tremendous receiving, receding of the tide, the bubbling of the ocean, the bobbing of ships far out on the horizon. There's a little 10-year-old girl on that particular Thai beach. Her name was Tilly Smith. She was from England. And just a couple of weeks before, her geography teacher had taught them about tsunamis and taught her what the symptoms or the warning signs of a tsunami were. And she saw these signs and she recognized them and she went to her mom and she said, Mommy, there's a tsunami coming. I was taught about this in class and that's what this means. Her mom believed her and her parents went up and down that beach and warned all the tourists and on that beach over 100 people's lives were saved. There were no casualties. It's the only Thai beach in that region where there were no casualties from that tsunami because little Tilly sounded the warning. And so today in 2 Samuel 13, God in his mercy is sounding a warning because in many of our lives, the signs are there. The water is receding. And the Bible says, flee temptation. Run like you've never run in your life from that relationship, from that activity, From that thought, from those words or those actions, flee like you've never fled in your life. It says it again and again and again. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from idolatry. Flee the evil desires of youth. Flee. If the water's receding, flee. If you have partaken of the temptation that's come your way, The kindness of God this morning is inviting you to repent and be forgiven. It mitigates those consequences and renders the consequences that remain useful in God's hand for good in our lives. This is the great hope of all who trust in Christ and only those who trust in Christ 
and are numbered amongst God's family. And so this morning, as our worship team comes to close us, I'd like to urge you to flee. And if you have failed to flee, to repent.